to Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John. And I'm Jim. Welcome to episode 129. And today we're going to talk about three temptations that every Christian faces in this world. And they're significant And how we handle these temptations turns out to greatly affect both, I would say, our personal peace, our life efficacy. Mm-hmm. I like that word. I like that word. I like that word. Uh, it, it's a it's a really great thing. Now, these come out of Matthew chapter 4. This is a John-led episode. So this, instead of a father-son conversation, is going to be a son and father conversation. <laughs> yeah. So John's going to going to disciple me just, on these three temptations. Just imagine him sitting on my lap, and I'm <laughs> reading a book to him. <laughs> oh, little daddy. Three little pigs. <laughs> then with yeah. my feet, you're saying, this little piggy went to market. Yeah. 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 All right, I'm, I'm about done with that. <laughs> Before that, it is oh, Joker story time, and you're up this week. Yeah, so I thought I would tell kind of a story, but it's more of a concept of stories. Okay. I'm a big fan of sports. I love sports. Wrote sports for a local paper for seven years. I'm just a big sports fan. And um, <clears throat> Sue was new, really, to any in-depth thought about sports. For sure. Uh, when we got married. And uh, so there's a particular part of sports. I like lots of, so this isn't my favorite part of sports, but but, uh, there are sports where physical altercations are part of the strategy of the sport. For example, the first one that Sue struggled with was baseball, a pitcher hitting a batter on purpose. Oh. Um, She couldn't get her arms around why you would ever do that. Yeah, because you get them on a base. Right. But um, what happens is it's a statement. To the other team. And so, for example, if your pitcher hits our shortstop, then uh, we can you can know that when your shortstop gets up to bat, he's getting hit. Oh. Unless our shortstop bats 360 and your shortstop bats a buck 25, then we're going to hit your 360 hitter. I see. So, uh, and so throwing the ball high and tight to push the guy off the plate to scare him, these are all, you know, strategic things. And this is why when a batter gets hit, sometimes the umpire will warn the other team, if you hit their guy, I'm going to throw your pitcher out of the game. And they'll do it anyway. And the pitcher gets ejected. Dang. Um, It's just part of the game. Well, I'm a big Seattle Kraken fan. We have our NHL team finally. Yeah, we got one win. Yeah, one win out of two games. We're one and one. We played two playoff teams. And one of them, the Vegas Knights, is predicted to win the whole thing this year. And we hung with them to the very end. Game two, we won. It was against the Nashville Predators. That's and yeah. the Predators. Did they come out on the ice, <laughs> clicking their teeth like, you know, like the, the one from the movie. The Predators, no, that, they don't do that. <laughs> Have slime dripping down. Yeah, them. yeah. They uh, they are known for a, to be a very physical team. In fact, locally in Nashville, they're called Smashville. Mm. The Smashville Predators. Yeah, because they are very physical. That's a big part of their whole strategy. So the Kraken go into this game at Smashville, and uh, they they lay it on them. They are very physical for this game, kind of taking their own game back to them. Sure. And the Kraken had in that game their first fight. Now, fighting in hockey is a given thing. Yeah. Uh, Sue has always wondered, why don't they make rules about this to really punish people who fight? And the answer is because it's part of the strategy of hockey. For some reason, it always has been. I can't. Um, 
well, socially responsibly explain why, <laughs> but I can sports psychology explain why. Okay. And uh, the Kraken demonstrated that. So one of our players named Vince Dunn, he's going into the corner and he just lays this guy out. I mean, he knocks him like a football kind of hit. Yeah, it looked. You showed me the clip. It looked like a football hit. Yeah, and it was very intense. Well, they have a player named Yakov Tenen. Where's he from? He I don't know, but he's <laughs> tall and massive, and he's their bully. Okay. Every team in the in the hockey league usually has a bully. So, for example, if you hit my goalie, like you run into my goalie, our bully's coming for you next. Like you're gonna you're gonna pay for it. And he's and it's a way for that's them. That's an official title, right? He's not officially oh, no. the bully. No, they don't have it on the roster, that right? Way, okay. But every team has one. Gotcha. And they'll lead the league in penalty minutes, and they'll you know their job it is they they're called the enforcer. Okay. So hockey has its own calibration of enforcing the ethics of the team. Sure. You broke a rule here, an unwritten rule, by going after Wayne Gretzky in the corner and trying to hurt him so he can't score against you anymore. So our enforcer is going to come after you. Dang. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. And so uh, in this particular game with Nashville, the Kraken are losing by a goal. Well, Vince takes this guy in the corner, wears him out. Well, Yakov comes in there, and uh, he decides he's going to enforce. You don't do that to our guy. Yeah. So they have a fist fight. <clears throat> our guy really gets he gets the worst end of that. But immediately the momentum of the game has changed. The Kraken score two quick goals. They end up winning the game by one goal. And in the in the interviews, they were saying what a – momentum changer it was for the whole team to start that fight to see Vince go in there take this guy out and then fight so it changed the it changed the momentum of the game entirely even though it was in Nashville the Nashville guy kind of won the fight and the crowd's going crazy about that but the Seattle team was fired up that our guy took their guy down yeah with a big hit with a big hit and so it changed the whole uh energy of the game I love that kind of part of sports to understand how these guys are like, it's almost like a um, prison culture, you know, (laughs) you could be fascinated by understanding prison culture. Yeah. I love understanding the culture of each sport. Yeah. I've wondered, because I I normally don't watch hockey. I've watched uh, uh, basically combined one of those games, probably half of each with you. And I was wondering like, how do they not get mad all the time at each other? Like if you, if you've ever been, accidentally hurt sometimes the automatic reaction is is anger yeah and especially if some guys run into you like sometimes you'll see these pits this one you showed where he laid the guy out was you know obviously far and away very violent but they're always shoving each other in corners to get him out of the way and and that's a part of the game it's called checking it is a legal part of the game well to separate a guy from the puck so my question was not why do they have fights it was why aren't they fighting constantly All all the time and hockey fights and hockey are a very normal thing. And in fact, the joke is I went to a fight one time and a hockey game broke mm-hmm. out. <laughs> so uh, it is a normal thing. And I think I've told you the story of the time my dad made me when I was playing hockey in high school. My dad made me start a fight. I don't know if I've heard that one. So we're in uh, either Oklahoma City or Tulsa, uh, travel away for a tournament. And um, after the first period, I'd already scored two goals. And then in the second period, I scored another goal, and my dad calls me over to the glass. So you scored all three goals for your, your team? Or? Well, we had more than three. Oh, okay. Um, but I was This on, was a blowout. I was on fire. Gotcha. <clears throat> and so my dad calls me over to the glass, and he says, hey, after you scored that last goal when you skated by their bench, number four spit on your back. 
I'm like, so what? Look at the scoreboard. Yeah. He's like, you kick his ass. That's what. This is so. This is this is my family. Yeah. Okay. This will give you a glimpse into my family. My dad says you kick his ass. I said if I do, I'll get kicked out of the game. So we finished the rest of the second period. I haven't done anything. Start of the third period. My dad called me over the glass. I told you number four, kick his ass. I said, Dad, if I fight, I'm ejected from this game and the next one because in, in junior hockey they don't want they don't want high school kids fighting. Right. So if you fought in our league, you were kicked out of that game and the next one. So I would not get to play in our next game on this tournament. Wow. And I said, Dad, that's ridiculous. He scored three points this game. Yeah. He said, look at me, son. He said, you either kick his ass or I'm going to tie you to the bumper and drag you all the way back to Dallas. <laughs> and so late in the third period, I waited till late in the game as possible. I happened to go into the corner with number four. I put my hand behind his head and slam his head against the glass. We drop our gloves and fight. And as, I, as I'm ejected from the game, I skate by my dad and go, you happy? He said, yes, I am. And my mom, during the fight, is jumping on the glass, yelling, hit him again, <laughs> hit him again. <laughs> so that's, that, that's my family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know, you didn't see that Tanya Harding movie, did you, I, Tanya? No, I didn't. It's, it's like diet Tanya Harding. Yeah. <laughs> and you ended up a little better than, well, she's doing, supposedly she's doing good now. But, well, that's good for her. Yeah, the easier life. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's that's my that's my hockey fighting story and my love for uh, sports psychology, psychology with physical implications. Yeah, there's well, I'll, I'll make this quick. But there's a lot of study on uh, color psychology in sports. So mm -hmm. like uh, in uh, esports, which if you don't want to call it right. that, you don't have to. Right. But you know, like like uh, <laughs> where four hundred pound six foot guys can sit on their couch and be an athlete. Most of them are about eighty pound Korean men. Oh. So. <laughs> It's actually the exact opposite. But, That's hilarious. Uh, a lot of them is like, because uh, you get assigned a red or a blue team in a lot of these games, and the psychology of the aggression of the red team, doesn't yeah. matter who gets assigned it, because right. they're the color red, it changes their behavior. Well, red, red vehicles get more tickets than yeah. any other color. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. They say red incites uh, an emotional reaction. Who knows? I wonder, I've wondered, because that's always been my favorite color. I wonder if it's because I'm a tame guy and I want to... You want to fire up. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about these temptations, John. Facilitate this conversation. Let's get going. Yeah, for sure. So uh, these are... We talked about this book a little bit a while ago, or maybe only a week or two ago, but we've now finished uh, the book, In the Name of Jesus, by Henry Nouwen. He wrote it for Christian leaders uh, after he had... He was a, a, a priest, and he had left his high standing at Harvard and he was really big in the, in the writing and intellectual circles and he left to go work at a uh, institution for adults with learning disabilities called uh, La Arch in uh, Montreal. Yeah. And prior to that he had been at Oxford, he'd been at Yale, he'd been at Harvard and he was traveling giving lectures and speeches everywhere. He was a thing. He's a Wri thing. Writing books, you know, kind of a thing. And he felt uh, in a spiritual drought and he says he doesn't elaborate but he says without a doubt he was told he prayed for a sign and he was told without a doubt to do this to go live with these okay these, so these not a, he didn't have a spiritual director kind of point him that way he doesn't say he might have i don't remember anyway, but it, yeah. in this book at least he might have elsewhere but and by the way for those of you who are not real readers this book is 53 pages it's a small book you can read it in an hour and a half probably but it is a game-changing book i've read it half a dozen times and now i will read it three or four times a year and it's for Christian leaders, but like me, if you don't find yourself in a leadership position or even with leadership inclinations, it is very good for just about thinking about uh, ministry living, L thinking about your life 
as a mission to God, your oikos, you know. And I think, too, with these three temptations we're going to talk about, that it's uh, it's also just how to navigate the dynamics of this crazy world. Yeah. How do I get my arms around how to live in this cultural moment for Jesus and in a way that keeps my sanity, uh, reduces my anxiety? You know, the, we're talking about we're talking about both personal peace. We're talking about spiritual strategy mm-hmm. and we're talking about having your life be an, an influence in the correct way for God. All of that's wrapped in this. Exactly. So he breaks it down off of the temptations of Christ found in Matthew four. Right. Okay. Yep. And uh, so in these, it's interesting because these are not for it, for Jesus. These would have been uh sin, especially if he had, you know, it, in the temptations, if he had him resisting, those was holiness and it was him, you know, proving themselves the Messiah is a whole lot of things. Now that's an interesting question. So you're saying that you don't necessarily think given any of these temptations is sin if you're not Jesus. Yeah. Because we're not, you know, if, if we're face to face with, uh, the devil or a demon or however, it, however it was, it might be cause you're choosing his word over the word of God. Right. But in these particular, so the temptations that, uh, Henry now breaks down what are, what they really were. So the temptation to turn, uh, rocks into bread was really the temptation to be relevant. That's okay. the first one. Uh, and then the other two are the temptations to be spectacular, and that was to throw yourself off the temple. Of the temple, and the temptation to be powerful, which is I'll give you all these kingdoms that are under my control. Okay, so just to summarize, get us get our arms around this: the three temptations we're going to talk about that each human being faces, especially you're trying to live your life uh, in and with Jesus. Yeah, the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular. And the temptation to be powerful. Exactly. So what I meant earlier, I should have waited to after I introduced these, but what I meant is that if you fail at these temptations and you try to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful, I wouldn't, those aren't necessarily sins. Those are b- putting barriers between yourself and people and between yourself and, and God. So this is helpful, I think, and maybe this is overkill, um, but I think I, I'm compelled to mention it. Yeah. Sin... Um, there's three words in the Bible used for this concept that we universally call sin. Uh, one is sin. One is transgression. One is iniquity. Sure. And transgression is a willful violation of the law. That's not what this would be. Right. If I'm giving into the impulse to power up and take control, uh, that's not a willful violation of God's law, but it is a sin. And it's a sin because the word sin is an archery term, not to hit a bullseye. Mm -hmm. So, uh, by nature, I don't hit bullseyes. And so when you're in a scenario where you might face the temptation to be relevant and you give in to that temptation, I would say that's a sin. Gotcha. It's not a transgression. Right. But it is. But you're missing the you're mark. You're missing the mark of what God would call you to. And therefore, I, w- I would call that sin. Yeah. Well, let's start with. It's worthy of repentance, I would even say. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Let's start with uh, the temptation to be relevant. So, uh, again, this one. Uh, really, he's talking about being capable, about making tangible uh, uh, contributions, s- contributions, secular contributions, or or work contributions. Not even necessarily secular, but but uh, really to be for people to know that you are making a difference. Is, yeah. Is so so for you to make a a practical, uh, capable difference in the environment right in front of you. So yeah. he describes the the relevant person, uh, the relevant self, uh, can do things, show things, prove things, build things. And he contrasts that with the unadorned self, as he describes it. Mm. Uh, by contrast, they are completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. 
and we need to be irrelevant to show the world that we are not loved because of our accomplishments. Wow. So that the, he basically breaks it down to an understanding of your, of the, he has a, he has a, he talks about the first love, the love of God Mm -hmm. and the understanding of the first love that if you strive to be relevant, it does not convey understanding of the first love and you may not even understand the first love that uh, to be, to live a lifestyle of irrelevance and non-reliance on your capability and contributions, you show by your lifestyle, the gospel of a workless uh, or a uh, what's Performa- the non-performance-based yeah. uh, grace. Okay, so talk about first love for a second. Tell me more about that. Uh, the first love, he it's it's primarily in the beginning of the book, but it's basically uh, the love. The first love is the love that God has for us, and the second love is ours for people Him or correct, others. Or for, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that and so is, the first that is love the pure, is pure, powerful. Uh-huh. It's uh, it's unconditional. It is transformational right whereas the love we offer to ourselves and to others tends to be performance based it tends to have ups and downs highs and lows yeah it can be reactionary it can be withheld and so while this is for leaders the 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 book in general the uh concepts and 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 tips and what he's learned at large on conveying the first love as purely as he can is universal and so this is huge in it's it's interesting when I think about one of my recent thoughts about uh, Jesus being the word and the way he is, you know, when someone asks, how do I get to heaven? You look at the person, right? So it's interesting. You can tell people things and show people things. And this was what Henry now did for a living mm-hmm. was to tell people and show people things. And then there is the message of the person. So if, you know, Henry now preached constantly irrelevance mm-hmm. and, and unadornment, but he didn't live it the gospel is not preached in the person of Henry Nowen. You know what I'm saying? So, so by living an irrelevant life and a life that is not, uh, re- or, or leaning on your capabilities and your accomplishments and your talents, you actually preach the gospel as your person. As so your the body. messenger is the message. Exactly. My life is the message and my life reveals that I'm anchored in the first love. And my life mission then is to reveal that first love through my love to others. Exactly. And, and so to, and that by without words, people could see that by looking at you. Yeah. And so then when I give into the temptation to be relevant, I'm choosing you to be impressed by me based on my relevance rather than to be impressed with the first love of God through me. Yeah. And a lot of this is, uh, you said efficacy and a lot of this is kind of about that. It's not necessarily tweaking your, your efficacy, but it's, it's talking about what does and doesn't work in general ways. So if you were to, uh, as far as the gospel say, well, I need to be capable so people can see what I what I do. Yeah. He breaks down the temptation to turn, uh, uh, the stones into bread as temptation to, Hey, uh, you're hungry. You can solve a practical problem right now by doing this thing. And that if people see the problems I solve, that if they can notice me because of my contributions for them, you know, he says that like, if we, the, the way we think about it now in our, in a fallen sense is that if I don't make any difference in people's lives tangibly, they won't even notice me and I can't tell them about the gospel. They won't even believe the gospel because you're just pie in the sky. Right. Which but is an old thing people used to say. I, I, I'm not familiar with pie in the sky. I don't actually know what it means. <laughs> well, I wasn't but, being condescending. I okay. mean, people would, that would be their insult about religious people. They're so heavenly minded. They're no earthly good. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the reality of it is that it doesn't, at that point you get, you get lost one with everybody else who's, who's in that relevant space. Mm-hmm. 
And two, you're not actually living out the gospel that you're trying to tell them in the first place. Right. So, so how did this hit you? The relevance part, where did that speak to you in your, the, just the, your life? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot about um, entering arenas, right? So we talked in our social media influencer episode about uh, Tim Keller. Yeah. He's in that arena. And the way we normally think about it is that we're glad there's Christians in that arena. There's Christ followers in that arena because they're there, they're engaging. And uh, Tim Keller is the image of uh, relevance in a non, again, non necessarily, I'm not condemning him. That is the best way you could do such a thing. Yeah, because it doesn't appear to be ego driven, trying to build a platform. He's trying to have um, really important conversations with people who might be open to thinking. Right. And so generally we think about it in engagement like that. So really this is just, and this is kind of the bigger theme for all three of the temptations, all three of the um, reversals, but this is less than uh, it's a turn away from the self. So if, if, if before I thought I can engage and prove the gospel through my relevance, it is the exact opposite. So again, in this exact, in this example of influencers and engagement in arenas, I wouldn't say the answer is to disengage from the arena, but the, uh, it's almost like a resume. You would say, Hey guys, listen to me because of this. Right. And what is the, this, what are you holding up? And if it is the way now and was before La Arch and was listening to me because of my years in the ministry, the, the reason he learned this was because when he got to that, that home, none of the disabled adults gave a rip they didn't, about what he they did. They didn't care about his education, his experience, his resume. Mm-hmm. It meant nothing to them. Hey, I'm cold. Are you going to bring me a blanket? Exactly. The only thing that mattered was one, what he could do for them in that moment in real time, how he could serve them. And two, uh, his, his heart for them and his consistency with them and his love for them. So yeah. the, the you you replace relevance with vulnerability. That's the unadorned self. That's the, the okay. One, two so so the temptation to be relevant is I need to wow people with my skills. I need to be excellent. I need to be out there. I need to build a platform, and then that'll give me an opportunity to represent Jesus in the marketplace. Versus the turning away from that is, um, what is giving and receiving love regardless of any accomplishments. That's his the unadorned self. Okay. Now, what did this speak to you? This is still my question. How does this apply to the life of Jonathan Ladd? Hmm. I don't know. Well, because it contributes to, again, this reorganization, excuse me, reorganization of, of what it is to succeed, to succeed and to grow. So again, it would be in, in my understanding of this, and still I'm struggling with this, but my understanding of it uh, previously is uh, that if I wanted to enter the uh, public arena of thought and to, to, you know, engage with people there, it would be by the quality of writing I would do or uh, uh, something like this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. the quality of thought, quality of what's the word, putting something into words. What is that? Uh, con- articulation. Articulation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so instead it would be, if, if again, we're talking about efficacy and, and mission living, mm-hmm. then really it's just what, what is any, what is it worth to do these things? So what is it worth one to be an extraordinary communicator mm-hmm. as opposed to an extraordinarily vulnerable and open person and understanding that in the simple terms of efficacy, the vulnerable person is more efficient and has more sway for, for the gospel than the excellent communicator. And these are not mutually exclusive. No. A mutual, a, 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 uh, what kind of communicator did you call him? Uh, uh, I said excellent, but an, an excellent yeah, communicator yeah. could be 
also vulnerable, transparent. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to reveal through their communication the first love. Yeah. And so the the it feels like to me the the shift is I want to be relevant so that people will listen to me shifts to I want to be a conduit of the first love so that people will feel loved and transformed by the grace and power of Jesus. Yeah. And whatever role I play in that is secondary and not the point. Yeah. Well, and even the reason I, I wanted to lead with these not being um, transgression sins yeah. is because a lot of these, when you try and science it and you're trying to spread the gospel, you, you, you could legitimately not think of yourself. You could say, I want to be relevant and excellent in my field to lead people to Jesus. Yeah. But what now is saying is, is one, your heart might be deceptive enough to not acknowledge that you are thinking of yourself also. And two, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. It's not efficient. So as I think about this, um, and we're going to pick up the pace here because we've got two more temptations to talk about, but um, I'm reading a book right now, uh, and it's talking about the evolution over time of the evolving American self. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it starts with this question that there's a statement someone might make today. I am a woman in a man's body. Mm-hmm. And the culture would say that is a fact. And that is a fact that the whole world accepts because you just said it. And it and wasn't that long ago when people would laugh at that and go, what are you talking about? Sure. And um, that this was not um, this was not a thing you could articulate as a factual thing. And he talks about, you know, if I had said if someone had said that to my grandfather, he would have laughed out loud. Hmm. Because there, until now, the world was not a world in which you could make such a statement, and it would be taken as a fact. Sure. So if I'm in this world and I want to help particularly teenagers, young kids, boys and girls evolving into their fulfilled sexual selves, um, I might want to have this – I want, might want to enter into this conversation about are you a woman in a man or are you um, experiencing some confusion or are, is there something going on? Um and, and to have an intelligent conversation about that. But I would not rely in this context. I would not be relying on my relevance to be persuasive with my words. For sure. Or even the science and the technology. I would speak to the soul. And I would uh, do that through the context of offering the first love. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that is that kind of where you're at? Yeah. And that one's uh, that one speaks really to the third temptation. So we'll get to that in, okay. in a little bit here. So the temptation might be to win the argument or to be outsmart somebody. Exactly. When in reality, I just need to outlove everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And be out and out vulnerable. Everybody be yeah. out open. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. What's temptation number two? So number two, the reason why I I ran into some walls with the uh, influencer conversation, I brought that up a little too soon. Number two is the temptation to be spectacular. Mm. And so he talks about this in two ways. One is to be an individual and to be, you know, the hero. He talks a lot about our the obsession man. with the hero. I'm going to yeah. be the man. Yeah. And, uh, but also it's about, uh, being, um, he doesn't use the word famous, but, but being seen, mm. being out, out and, and seen. So, uh, this is a, a quote from him. Uh, so he says, living with very wounded people. I came to see that I had lived most of my life as a tightrope artist trying to walk on a high, thin cable from one tower to the other and always waiting for the applause when I had not fallen off and broken my leg. Uh, end quote. Uh, this leads to followers with low self-esteem because they fell off the tightrope or mm-hmm. because they couldn't get up on the tightrope. So, again... So, my inability to be spectacular 
is sabotaging my life. Exactly. So he, it's even like, he says it is a lie that you could be as spectacular as you want to be. So it's almost, it's a little defeatist in that way. Mm. But again, talking about efficacy, the truth is that the tightrope walker uh, is not changing the number of lives of the person down with people, you know, one-on-one. Oh, so the, so the celebrity, the all-star is not the one who's changing the world. Yeah. And this is huge. This is a big shift for me. And he talks a lot about in these three, he's also talking about the church at large. Uh, but personally, you know, we'll talk about uh, like, there was a moment I've, I don't know if I talked about on the podcast, but with you where I think it was the 2017 or 16 Grammys, I think it was uh, January, 2017 uh, chance. The rapper had just uh, come up with a coloring book, which was after he had gotten saved. And he has a song in the album where he sings, how great is our God for about a minute and a half or three minutes, somewhere in there. And so he led the Grammys in this song in how great is our God wow. for a long time for, for, for a couple minutes. And it's fascinating how that crowd eats that up. It's yeah. It, and just to think, because our view of the, the church's view of the Grammys is pretty depraved. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. so it was to me an, an amazing moment. But what this suggests is that that is, that is a, a very shallow experience for people in that crowd. That really what what is successful here missionally is that uh, and again they're all they all are related is that vulnerable in person living together. So the best way for Chance the rapper to change the world is not just to lead the Grammys and how great is our God for three minutes, but to live a vulnerable first love life in his neighborhood and his family yeah. and with all the people he makes records with. And as he goes on tour or whatever, but that'd be this person to that when all, all is said and done, we might learn that if he lived, not to say he doesn't, but if he lived this kind of, uh, Oikos style life again with, with right. those people in the front row of his lives and, and living, uh, selflessly and vulnerable, vulnerably, that would be the better work that he did in his life. It's more fun to be spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it sounds, it's a lot cooler. You know, I, I read somewhere that in uh, among Gen Zers, like 64% of them, when you interview them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think 64% the answer is be an influencer. I think it was 48. I think it was about half. Was it about half? It, yeah. Which is still an, an insane number. An insane number that this percentage of that population, that age group in our in our country, this is how they view how they want to spend their lives. Yeah. And they look at that because they see these people being spectacular People watch somebody's social media life and think that's really is their life. Yeah. And then you find out that somebody who appeared put together, really sharp, successful, happy, they end up taking their own life. And you're like, what happened? Yeah. And it's because that was all a facade. It's all a facade, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think because it seems the value, especially with, like you said, with social media, the value is, is in being seen and being front and center. And, you know, we think... Like my dream really when I'm being honest with myself is to be uh, like a, a, I can justify the work as like a C.S. Lewis could. Yeah. If you, if your dream was to be a 21st century C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Then our current American way of looking at it is right on. You could change a lot of lives that way. You can reach a lot of people that way. Right. And I think the truth of it is that it may be not that your time could be better spent because that obviously he's gifted and he's edifying people for generations since then. 
but that that isn't the work of his life. The work of his life was in the edification of his yeah. of his people. I have a friend who I've had several uh, friends who use this phrase. I had one young man who said, you know, he was in our seniors group one year. And when I asked him what he wanted to do with his life, he said, I want to, um, I don't remember if it was play professional sports or if it was uh, play professional music, but I want to be the most famous uh, person I could possibly be so that I have a giant platform for Jesus. Hmm. And uh, I was persuaded given his maturity level and how much I knew about him that in fact he wanted the fame sure. uh, more than he wanted the influence platform for Jesus. I have another friend who, who uh, they use the phrase at their church all the time, make Jesus famous. We exist to make Jesus famous. Hmm. And uh, it never rubs me the right way um, because fame people – We've talked about this in the past. Fame people are one-dimensional. They are non-human. Yeah. You know, they're they are an object. And uh, I would rather make Jesus deeply known. Yeah. Like, I want people to know him and to experience him. And I know that's what they mean when they say make Jesus famous. So I'm splitting hairs. Sure, through. sure. But it's interesting when we talk about it, it. What strikes me is personal motive. I want to be famous so that I can communicate Jesus to the world is a is a um, is a twist to I want to be so profoundly belonging to him uh, anchored in and living in the first love that my life emanates the second you know the first love through my second love as effectively as possible yeah that my eggs are in this basket not in that one well and it's you know the humanization is angle is, is great I hadn't even thought about that but where again from that distance the distance from me through Twitter, through Spotify, through YouTube, whatever, seeing people on the screen, mm-hmm. famous people, uh, the humanity is lost. You're in, and, and, you know, you can strive to reduce that distance, but the only real way to have no distance is intimate relationship with life people. on life. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the only way to do it. So, uh, I've heard anecdotally, so I don't know in numbers on this, but I've heard of, of, uh, youths across the country as Kanye West started releasing Christ inspired music. They tell their mom, I want to go to church on Sunday because Kanye West goes to church on Sunday. Right. And they go, and then some of them have amazing experiences there. And so it's not to discredit that. Yeah. Those influences happen. Right. But the actual, the actual power is when they got to the building and, and created real personal relationships. So it's not to discredit the influence at all. Yeah. So maybe it's not either, or it's both. And, and it's the way in which, because I think of you as an author. This doesn't mean that you should aspire to nobody ever read your writing. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, or that only the people who know you intimately read your writing. That's not the goal. So somehow the goal is for you to write with excellence and beauty and force. Let God take that wherever he wants to. And hopefully it makes a difference for the people who read it, even though you're not a human to them. You're a one-dimensional thing or just a message or just a piece of yeah you know, whatever but that that also be reflected in the way you live your personal life there's no hypocrisy there right there's no breakdown and you're not anchoring your identity on how many books got sold and i have an under, exactly i have an understanding of what is what what is worth anything in my actual life so so for john the author the temptation is to be famous to measure yourself by how many books get written and sold Versus to measure yourself by how much you're anchored in and living out the first love. How authentic I'm being. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so that is the, that's why these are temptations and not, um, they, they draw us away from, away from, yeah, from away from the bullseye, from bullseye and the bullseye in relevance is that you are anchored in, you are relevant because you are, you belong to God. Mm -hmm. You don't have to demonstrate relevance. You are relevant because you are relevant to the father. The temptation is to find your identity in your spectacular, Mm -hmm. uh, celebrity or fame or work. When in reality, I find myself in the first love of the father and I do work excellently in his name for his sake rather than in my name and for my sake. Yeah. And a huge part of this that we haven't quite touched on, because I feel like mostly he is talking about the visibility angle, but a lot of it he spends talking about individualism mm-hmm. and that loneliness. And and he talks about how at seminary he was trained. He, he imagines it like he was trained to go on a long hike with a big bag of trinkets. And on the, on his hike, he'll meet people who he needs to minister to with his giant bag of trinkets Mm -hmm. and it's him alone. Yeah. And the tightrope tightrope walker is alone. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, and the, the famous author, famous author is alone. Uh huh. went into a room alone and produced an amazing work of art and came out and shared it with the the world. The painter, the investor. Yeah. You pick pick almost any career. It's, it's me doing the influencer, me doing professional, great work myself that changes the world. Yeah. The influencer is, is generally not a group. It is look at me as I live my life. Yeah. So, uh, that's a huge angle of it to forfeit the soul hero idolatry. Cause Mm -hmm. I idolize that. Mm -hmm. I I idolize the writer who creates an amazing work. Right. And, And in, 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 uh, corporate, worlds and leadership worlds it's called the great man theory mm. oh, so yeah. so if an organization is struggling we need a great man we need a new ceo we need a church is struggling we need a new pastor we need the great man to come in and guide us all into the, the future yeah. yeah and it is a deep cry of the human heart and what god wants us to know is that he's the great man he's the great leader and we all look to him the rest of us then serve uh, as servant leaders in teams yeah um empowering people rather than leading them like solo heroes. Absolutely. That's interesting. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Upstream is supported by the faithful members of the Upstream team, listeners who give monthly through Patreon. This podcast is just one part of the Jim and John ministry. They also write weekly blogs, have published their first book, and are currently at work on more. Their desire is to produce transformational content as well as offer encouragement and coaching to others. The dream is to see a movement of people who are integrating the work of Jesus into their daily lives and who are joining him on his mission to redeem and restore all things. Check out their website at jimandjohn.com where you can learn more about the father-son duo and gain access to all they have to offer. If you would like to join the Upstream team, consider partnering with Jim and John on patreon.com slash Jim and John. A link is also available on the homepage of their website. And remember, there's no H in John. Now let's join Jim and John for the home stretch of today's conversation. And we're back. Thank you so much for all of your um, partnership in this project. Um, 
we have surrendered our our uh, objective of being celebrity mm. uh, influencers <laughs> and being famous. We just want to serve you, and I hope that that you're finding that to be the case. Yeah, we we chose not to have thousands and thousands of <laughs> love listeners. <laughs> yeah, we do our work half heartedly so that nobody will pay attention to it. Uh, anyway, uh, John, it's time for a uh, media or show and tell. What do you got for us? Uh, I've got so again one of the things that made me think about this. Uh, before I was in those chapters of now and this relevancy thing specifically is uh, an artist named Leon Bridges. And uh, it's interesting with how music works now because of Spotify, it's almost decentralized where earlier it might've been the radio was, was a big thing. Whoever's on the radio, right. you know about. So Leon Bridges, I've found through Spotify's, you know, suggestions and things. Mm-hmm. And the guy's got 9 million monthly listeners on Spotify. Well, how else would you highest. find him? Because you don't listen to the radio. Well, exactly. Well, no one really does anymore. <laughs> That's the thing. So I might know him through uh, social media. Right. But I don't really use that either. So yeah. anyway, so I'm like, oh, who's this guy? He's a superstar. So this is not, uh, you know, this is not me throwing a bone to some some small music artist. But uh, I was listening to his stuff and I, I realized I got to a song that's about uh, him coming back to God. And it's very clearly, it's not, it's not mass. He talks about, you know, it, it's, it's very clear. And so this was me thinking, wow, this could be powerful. And this one had like 25 million listens. And then I find another one. Actually, his most famous song has 200, now 258 million listens. It's wow. the biggest one. And it's about coming back to God, the prodigal son, getting baptized. It's, and it's the most listened to song he's ever, he's produced. ever, he's ever produced by a, by a mile. It sounds like, uh, no, by about uh eighty thousand. Oh, okay. Uh, eighty million. Excuse 80 me. Million. Eighty million. Yeah. So yes, quite a bit. Yeah. But the other one's two hundred and twenty million. Okay. When you're this famous, it it starts to right, look right. Funny. Anyway, just to imagine that many people listening to a song, and they just probably enjoyed aesthetically. And the song is called what? Uh, well, this one's called uh, River. Is his big one. And if you hear it, you might go, oh, "Yeah, I'm. I remember. I've, I've heard that." And he's talking about you know how uh, his uh, hand his. He's got blood on his hands and his mouth is unclean and he can't come to God and God tells him to come to the river anyway and get baptized and be clean. Oh, wow. It's, it's, it's really powerful stuff and it's got that big. So then that's when I started thinking about relevancy and, uh, and how much I do uh, idolize that and, and the, the and efficacy of that. And, yeah. and it's spectacular. But what I want to share, just because I, I like his music, he has an album or uh, an EP actually called uh, Texas Sun and he... S-O-N? Uh, S-U-N. Okay. Uh, and it's only four tracks. Uh, he does it with, he co-produced it with this, uh, kind of interesting group of instrumentalists. Uh, but they do a lot of like blues and kind of world music. And what's his name again? Leon Bridges. Leon Bridges. Like Jeff Bridges, but okay. different. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Uh, and the last one on there is the first one. I was like, oh, this is a, this is a worship song. And, uh, uh, but otherwise it's a lot of, you know, just kind of general life music, but I enjoy it. So anyway, that is both part of this conversation and uh, my show and tell for the week is That's Texas awesome. Sun. So Leon Bridges, Leon Bridges, Texas Sun, and the River, and the River. Yeah, check that. That's on his first album. But if you go to his Spotify, it's, it'll be right there. It's you know one of his big ones. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Give us temptation number three, John. And uh, that that again, these are temptations of the self to find our uh, to find our fulfillment as a human being in these ways versus finding our fulfillment in God. Yeah. So temptation number three is to be powerful. Uh, so another quote from now he says, uh, even when he first got to La arch, he says, my leadership was still a desire to control complex situations, confused emotions and anxious minds. Unquote. 
Uh, the temptation here is to consider power a means to proclaim the gospel mm-hmm. by, by way of controlling people, culture, and politics when Jesus did exactly the opposite. Now, this is really interesting to me because I think um, the entire, well, the entire, it feels like the entire church has this fish hook in their mouths yeah. and are being lured away to this temptation to fight politically, to fight culturally, to control the behavior of mm-hmm. others. Um, I'm so uncomfortable with your sexual expression. I want to control it. Yeah, I don't want you to feel I want to make way. laws about it. I want, you know. And so this is a very tempting thing because in our mind, it's again to the efficacy deal. This feels like it's important. We need to do this. We need yeah. to stop the landslide. We need to protect the children. We need to control the environment because the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. That if Christians aren't in power in our in our uh, uh, country and they're not culturally relevant and they're not, you know, spectacular, spectacular, that how can this be? How can the gospel be shared? How can we change the world? Right. And really the one he talks a lot about control. And for me, that was huge because, again, he's talking to leaders, but also for me personally, uh, you and I have talked before about the relationship with. Uh, responsibility and control. You only really are responsible over what you can control. Right. And so when I think my uh, big struggle with me and my uh, relationships, especially with my wife is that I feel responsible. And so I feel I must control. Mm. So if she is having an anxious day, she's in, she's sick or she's sad, then I must fix. I must. (laughs) And if it's unfixable, then I'm on a terrible husband. And she now, uh, as well as being anxious, sick, or in pain, or whatever, now has the guilt of making me unhappy because I could not fix this. Could I could not, not control. Yeah. So the complex emotions, situations, the and again, this uh, with this image of Henry Nowen on his hike with his bag of goodies, uh, is fixing people, controlling things, being the hero who mm-hmm. saved the mm-hmm. day, and that does not relay the first love. The first love is vulnerable and sits with people in their complex emotions and confused hearts and and pain. So that is a huge self-death for me personally to acknowledge one powerlessness mm-hmm. and with that the freedom for one of what it is of of dropping that control and responsibility. This is really interesting to me because if you think about how could we change the world? How could we change our country? Yeah. Most of us would say relevance spectacular uh, demonstrations right. and control and power. Yeah. We would take control of the world through influence, through excellence, through having a better answer to every question. Uh, we would outperform everybody and control the outcomes. We would limit the, um, the terrain of stupidity, rebellion and evil. Yeah. And we would control the, uh, the projection and growth of what is good. And really what we see time and again is just, it just doesn't, that doesn't convey the first love in any way. It doesn't. And it doesn't demonstrate what Jesus would do. Exactly. Jesus entered the world and his objective was the same. I want to change the whole world. Yeah. And what did he do? He died to himself. He had 120 followers at the end. He had moments of spectacular, but then he'd seen, he tended to uh, take the teeth right out of the spectacular but he emptied himself. This is the bottom line. How did Jesus change the world by emptying himself? Yeah. We who claim to be his followers change the world by powering up, seeking spectacular relevance, and being celebrities. 
and controlling other people and environments. Yeah. That is completely not like Jesus. Yeah. This is the great slap in the face that the church desperately needs and that we need individually. I need to know this. I need to. And here's the thing I'm talking about in terms of personal um, health. When we take the weight of being the deliverer of the world off our shoulders, mm-hmm. when we lay down the need to be relevant and excellent, and we lay down the need to be spectacular, and we lay down the need to control other people, we find peace, we find joy, we find uh, rest, mm-hmm. and it forces us then to trust the God who we cannot control and give it all back to him. And that is emotionally, when you think about mental health, you think about emotional health, you think about uh, relational health. Yeah. It's genius. Yeah. I mean, you talk about needs that cannot be met. So part of all of this in an interesting, in a, in a non-spiritual way, which obviously this is all spiritual, but even if you're looking at it in a kind of uh, uh, practical, a relevant way, exactly. (laughs) You're saying, you would say, uh, well, I must be, relevant and capable and I can't be and I must be spectacular and famous and popular and I can't be and I must have control and I don't and you're constantly miserable in the state of not meeting the the requirements that you've set for yourself and that you think you should be super well said that's what I was trying to say and you just said it perfectly and succinctly I hope people last this far in the episode because this third one really to me helped us calcify all of them Mm -hmm. well and I mean we haven't even talked about the the first the introduction of the book is about mysticism and that spiritual leadership currently has lost a spiritual mysticism and personal relationship with Jesus this, this time in the presence and living in the mysteries of the spirit and for me all of this it's like a, it's like creating fruit or abiding in the vine mm-hmm. if you try and push out this fruit you're also going to be miserable so even trying to just forcibly change your mind and heart about these three temptations you know, they would also come about naturally just mm-hmm. with you abiding and just spending and living in a, a spirit filled life, uh, which I think was is his first priority for people in the first place. But well, man, that is so stinking good. The way that I find my own relevance to my life, my mm-hmm. own connection is by abiding in Jesus. The greatest single thing I can do is spend more time with Jesus, loving him, enjoying him, loving me. This becomes the root uh, and the vine of anything fruitful in my life. And this is a this requires a significant change in what you believe. Yeah, because I I have believed that me being relevant, me being on top, me being powerful, me taking control. This is how I serve God. And the reality is I serve God by relinquishing all of that. And I trust the supernatural power of God to accomplish his work in me and then whatever he wants to do through me. Boy, that's I, an amazing gear shift. Yeah, and I think that even that that belief change happens naturally as you spend time with God and you realize, okay, these tiny hidden moments are more powerful and genuine than than anything I've had in any of the grandiose moments of my and life. And nobody knows about it. Nobody them. knows about it. And when you get to know more and more the person of Jesus, you know, you these things become incongruent with his life and what he what he taught. So I think even just naturally I don't know. It just, it just happens. What, what this all has brought an awareness to me is how, how voluminous the miss is for 
typical Christians, typical churches, typical pastors relying on these three temptations rather than relying on rootedness in Jesus yeah. and the supernatural work of Jesus in and through us. So let's give some practical examples because I think this will help people put skin to this. Let's say sure. you have a teenage child who's going through it and maybe they're battling mental health issues. Maybe they're abusing substances. Maybe they're making terrible life decisions and you wonder what should you do? And as a parent, I can tell you your temptation is to be really relevant. How do I have the right answer for mm -hmm. what they're facing? How do I wow them with a persuasion away from those things? And how do I control their behavior and uh, use relational power, spiritual power, or political power to seize the moment? Yeah. And the answer really is for us parents is to anchor ourselves even deeper in Jesus, have the first love of Jesus to, so own us that the anxiety of our child doesn't own us. The first love of Jesus does. Mm. Now I have the power, the bandwidth, the freedom to really love this teenager fearlessly because I entrust their outcomes to the one who actually has the power to change it. That's awesome. God himself, not me. Yeah. And so as I do that now, I'm liberated to do what? To love my child more powerfully with the first love because I'm not tempted to control them. I'm not tempted to persuade them. I'm allowing the Spirit of God to do that. And I believe in my heart that he will, that he can. That is a game changer that, yeah. from a fear-based, anxiety-controlling parent to a anchored, powerful, incarnational parent. Absolutely. So that's just one example that might help you to start to put skin on, okay, what does this actually look like? Exactly, yeah, yeah, I love it. All right, what's your takeaway from the whole conversation, John? I think I've been giving it for the past 15 minutes. I yeah. think, yeah, basically uh, just that it is uh, one, well, I guess something I haven't said yet would be uh, that these are uh, new to me. So it's not a temptation that I knew I was giving into. Right, right. right. So, so acknowledgement of the temptation to realize, oh, it's it's the what is water thing. It's, it's yep. a cultural thing. Yeah, you're so you know even just going to college. The whole point of college is to make you capable, relevant, and powerful. Yes. That's the whole point. <laughs> so it's like it's like <laughs> here that's I the go. point of anything we do in the world is to help us be that more. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's to get go up and up and up. And the bigger point of this entire book that Nellen wrote is to go down further, down further, down further, down. And so that's the big takeaway for me as a life understanding a reorientation of life as that the most powerful thing you could do, the the most impact you could have is to die to yourself further and further and be more and more of a servant. Man. And it's the exact inversion of, of, of this, this, the kingdom It's the life of the spirit is to, is to go further and further down. So really that, that uh, mentality encompasses this whole conversation Yeah, and your intimacy with God because he takes you there. He makes that possible. Again, if you try to do that just on your own mental energies, you're going to be just as miserable as if you were wealthy and successful and yeah. famous. And if you, if you learn this, this is so great to the awareness that the temptations are there. Then you start being aware of when you're giving into those temptations. Exactly. Cause you identify them in real time. Exactly. And then you have the power to make a different choice. And uh, all of that really is fed most powerfully by these chunks of alone time with Jesus uh, rooted and um, established in him so that you can recognize the temptations and can make a different choice. Yeah. And uh, what will happen is you will constantly be tempted with these three mm. because you will feel like there's something I should do. 
in that crisis scenario, in this crazy moment. There's something I should do. There's some control I should take. There's some uh, spectacular heroic thing I should do. And you have to fight that constantly. And you have to fight that the culture does not value the kind of thing we're talking about. Right. So you're not going to. That's why it's tempting in the first place. Yeah. 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 Because you're invisible to them. Mm Mm-hmm at least in the physical world and in the, the, and in the in, macro in sense. the spiritual world, you are the most powerful you've ever been. And in, in relationships, you're very, very noticed and very needed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's phenomenal. It's great stuff. Hey, we hope this is speaking to your heart. We'd love to hear any questions you have feedback you have for us. You can info uh, email us at info at Jim and com. No H in the John. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. That's our favorite. Uh, more than anything, your views are, are very well appreciated, but Getting feedback, getting people who said these are what I what I was shouting at my my speaker when yeah, I was listening. Yeah. Those are like a little little presents for us. So they really you, are. If something comes to mind, please send it our way, and we'd love to hear from you. Yep. Pass the episode on to a friend, and have a great rest of your day.